Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books podcast. My name is Nat, and I am your host today, and we are so excited to welcome Jessica Johns to talk about her debut novel, Bad Cree. Jessica Johns is a Nehio auntie and member of the Sucker Creek First Nation in Treaty 8 territory in Northern Alberta. Her writing has been published in numerous literary magazines and her short story, Bad Cree, won the 2020 Writers Trust McClelland and Stewart Journey Prize. Thanks for being here, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Do you want to start by reading a little bit of the book for us to kind of set the scene? I'd love to, yeah. Uh, I'm going to read a section that occurs like pretty early on in the novel. Um, and I really love reading this section because it's the first introduction to Mackenzie's Cookham. Mackenzie is the main character and Cookham in Cree means grandmother. And uh, Cookham in this novel is one of my favorite characters. So I, I love reading the passage with her. By the shore, me, Tracy, and Cassidy were digging holes next to the water. Sabrina sat against the cluster of jack pines, reading a book about trees. She was already reading at a grade seven level and read anything about plants she could get her hands on. I don't think I ever saw her that summer without a book in her hands. We looked up when we heard a crunch coming from the trail that led to our campsite. Cookham emerged from the woods like a creature from the deep. With a cigarette in her hand, she swatted at the mosquitoes in front of her while pulling a giant blue wagon behind her. Cookham was shorter than all of her daughters, though she didn't look it, and she was all teeth. Her real teeth rotted out as a kid, and when she got dentures, they were too big and too white for her mouth. I think I fell in love with her teeth first, how they were so even and moved to the sound of the room. She used to call them a weapon. Stronger than regular teeth, she would say. Can bite through bone. Don't ask me how I know. Her party trick was putting her teeth in our water cups when we weren't looking, laughing when we'd spot the enamel staring back as we put our lips to the glass. She wheeled the wagon over to the campfire and whistled at us, even though we were already watching her. We normally were whenever she walked into a space. She waved her hand in front of the wagon like a magician, the smoke from her cigarette curling around her body. We all dropped the sticks we were using as shovels and ran over to her. Sabrina left her book right on the ground. Mom, hearing the whistle, came out from inside one of the tents she was setting up. Holy, where the hell did you get that? Cookham smirked over her shoulder at my mom while her grandkids circled her in hugs. Cookham has her ways. Auntie Verna popped her head out of the tent next to mom's. There's no way that's going to fit all those kids. They're not babies anymore, you know. Watch your tongue, Cookham said, taking a drag of her cigarette. These babies will fit just fine. I breathed her in as she talked to my mom and aunties. Even with all us kids pushing against her, she was sturdy like the trees she just came out of. Her soft stomach moved under my head as I pressed into her harder. Okay, let's take this out for a spin. She grabbed Sabrina by the hand and helped the rest of us get into the wagon. The cigarette, mostly ash, dangled from the side of her mouth. 
moving up and down as she talked. She started wheeling us back to the trail. Don't worry about us, mom yelled. We'll make sure to get everything cleaned and set up. That's my girl, cooking wave behind her. We're just gonna walk for a couple high prairie minutes. That's what Cookham used to call walking the trails through the woods. Mom rolled her eyes. Well, how long is that? The minutes take as long as they need to. A minute to her was the distance between two trail openings on the lake. No two openings in particular. It was just the amount of time it took to get from one trail leading from the woods to the water and the next one. Sometimes these openings were only a few feet apart. Sometimes they took forever. This is how I learned the trails around the lake, how I started to make myself a part of their paths. Before we had the wagon, we'd just walk and she'd point out plants and what they could do, tell us stories and jokes. Wap and wask, she once said, pointing at the ground to a yellow stalk spreading tiny white flowers growing in a plume. Your mom's favorite, fitting. Yarrow is stubborn like her, only grows where it wants doesn't take orders from anybody. Sabrina wrote down everything Cookham told us about plants. She even drew sketches and eventually started painting them. Me, Cass, and Tracy were more interested in her stories. Sometimes she'd take us on a long walk right before we were supposed to be leaving when mom and the aunties were packing up the campsite. By the time we got back, it would be late. We only walked a couple minutes, Cookham would say when mom got mad at her. Mom shook her head. A couple minutes, my ass, she said as she started to unpack, setting up camp again for us to stay one more night. It's not the only way to measure time, Cookham said once. Sometimes time is measured in the days between phone calls with, with your Cookham, which should never be very many. Sometimes it's the measure of a heartbeat. Thank you so much for reading and for uh, that that little section in particular, because I also loved Cookham so, so much. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that when the story starts and is taking place, Cookham has already passed, but she still feels so present in the story. Like you were reading that passage and I had to remind myself that you were reading a memory yeah, um, because she still felt so alive in so many of those parts. Um, but I wanted to start by asking you how this book came to be since it started as a short story. Um, so what what was the story like um, when it came to be? And like, was it Mac was the character there or maybe she wasn't quite Mac yet? Um, and then how you decided what a larger, more um, open version of this story would look like? Yeah, so this did start as a short story, and I feel like I feel like a, a really big part or big reason for it growing into the novel that it is is that I kind of let this story tell me what it needed and wanted to be. So when I, I, I had this idea for the story and I wrote it um, as a short story, but it, it didn't feel done. Um, I kept thinking about it. The characters really stayed with me. 
Mac was in the initial short story version, but she wasn't fully fleshed out. And it just, the character, they, they kept banging at my door and I just knew that the story was telling me that it needed to, to be fleshed out, that these characters deserved more time on the page, that they deserved growth. And I just listened to that and, um, and built it out in the ways that felt meaningful. Um, and it was challenging in a lot of ways because short stories and, and novels are, are very, two very different beasts. And, um, you know, building out sections of, of scenes and things like that really, um, yeah, really forced me to, to do a lot of um, interesting craft work that I'm very, you know, that I was very excited to do. And I think in the end, like, really became what it was asking to be in the first place. Speaking of, like, the craft of it, did you, since this is your first novel, did you know that you or were you interested in focusing either on short stories or novels in your writing um or have you focused or leaned towards one or the other um because I think some people might say they either set out to write stories or they they know they want to write a novel um but you had this kind of unique experience where you wrote a story and then realized that it needed to be more and a lot of times people feel like people do that but they're more prone to letting it go for whatever reason. And I love oh. that um, you talk about it telling you that it wasn't, it wasn't done. And that's also for everyone who goes to read it once uh, it is out. Uh, we'll see that that's a big part of the story as well. I feel like listening to what everything and everyone around you is telling you about what they need. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's very true. I think a lot of a lot of this story is about gut feeling and listening to your gut feeling and um, giving validity to to gut feeling and in, inherent knowing. And I think that I mean, I, I love writing short stories. I love reading short stories. It's a form that I find really exciting and really interesting and full of so much possibility. And um, that is why I wrote the short story first is because I, I love I, I love the form. Um, so I didn't I didn't initially set out, you know, thinking I'm, I'm going to write a novel. And I I think that. Yeah, I think that listening to that um, feeling that it wasn't in the form that it was in, it was supposed to exist in, um, was yeah part of that gut feeling approach that I am happy I listened to. And then speaking of the the gut feelings, um, I loved this this one section when Max starts first having her dreams um, and she's trying to figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> and she is trying to do research and she goes out and she's looking at different sort of superhero stories and origin stories for if something's happening, well, what caused it to happen? Um, 
And then she kind of takes a minute to ask herself, well, why was my first assumption that something had happened to me in order for these things to happen rather than they're happening because of something that is innately a part of me already? Um, and I think that that is a very common uh, path for women to take, especially and women of color. Uh, when anything happens for them, it didn't come from something that they already are, but it came from whatever resources they have access to or their relationships with other people. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about uh, highlighting that and making, Mac has to go on her journey to figure that out and realize that this is a part of her identity. Um, and I have another question to build off of this with, but I'd love to start by having you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, exa that's, that's exactly right. That's so true. Um, often, uh, I think it's very common for marginalized groups, particularly ones that um, with varying intersections of identity to when experiencing something um, awe-inspiring or experiencing some sort of, you know, any, any, yeah, big thing to attribute it to something outside of themselves. Um, and like imposter syndrome comes, comes a lot with that as well. Right. And, you know, that, that is because of, um, that is a, that is an effect that is a long-term effect of colonialism and, you know, living under capitalism, I think. Um, and I, I, in, in the story, actually, it's mentioned a couple of times, kind of going back to, um, it's not a story about superheroes, but but there are there are a couple of mentions of of superheroes and origin stories of like you know what what why this is happening and um of course um because mackenzie is disconnected from her own cultural knowledge a lot of her own cultural knowledge you know the first thing that she turns to is like uh pop culture but also you know the colonial ways of figuring stuff out, which is like, she goes to the internet, which sometimes is helpful for her, um, goes to stories she already knows, but again, are more colonial stories and they don't fit. They don't work for her. They don't make sense for what she's going through. And it's not until she goes home and she hears stories from her own family, from her own community of their origin stories of of dreaming of these sort of innate abilities that these women have that she's it clicks and she's like oh this has been living in us for for a very long time and because of oppression we have not spoken about it to each other we have not fully embodied what this thing could potentially be or do for us and you know that's kind of it's a it's kind of sad that you know she's they have gone a big portion of their lives not really um knowing this about themselves and and again that's uh uh a violence of of colonialism but it's also this empowering moment where they get to figure out what 
you know, a, a superhero or what what origin stories that do culturally make sense and are meaningful to them and you know going going back to yeah teachings from from themselves and and their family and what what lives what has been living inside of them this whole time um and a big part of that too is like I really wanted to highlight because there is a lot of um intergenerational trauma that indigenous peoples hold and pass down in many ways um because of violences we've experienced by the colonial government and and policies and legislature laws current and past and and also there's a lot of generational magic there's generational love and there's generational joy that also lives in us that we pass down that is there for us to delve into and embody and I think those two things can do can and do exist simultaneously and you I knew that you would lead me into my next question, which was, um, or a thing I wanted to talk about, which was um, both the idea that you are protecting people by keeping the truth from them um, and how that so quickly backfires when uh, people are either isolated or oppressed and then do not share those things with each other. Because as you were saying, Mackenzie was not home. She was away from home and her dreams get so bad that she decides to go home because that's the only option left. But when she first calls her one auntie to let her know what's going on, there's it sort of begins this chain of, okay, we, we're going to have to start talking about this because she sits down with her aunties and they have all had dreams. Her cousin has had dreams. Her mom did have dreams and has had to deal with her dreams in certain ways. Her sisters have dreams. And so there, like you said, is this empowerment and this magic in just uttering the truth. And Mackenzie says that a lot throughout the book that she's holding on to this, does not want to say it, can't say it. It's, I, it's just stuck in her throat. And the second she does, there is a lot of pain and trauma that she has to work through, um, which is the beauty of her story here. But she's able to do it once she just simply acknowledges that she's having these dreams. Um, and there was something so magical and beautiful about them sitting around the table, Auntie Verna telling her what her dreams were like, her mom telling her about her dream experiences, um, and her cousin Cassidy as well. There was just so much, um, there was so much love in that action too, of like you said, validating everyone else's experiences and not saying, well, those dreams don't matter or that's not real life. That doesn't have anything to do with your present. So go and live your life and figure out a way to move past it which is so often the answer. So making the space for that was sort of the beginning of her journey to doing what she needed to do. Yeah, 
Yeah, thanks for saying that. I I think it was it was really important for me that this thing happened with these women where once they did because because naming their truth telling the truth of what happens with all of them is incredibly difficult because of so many reasons so that struggle is there but it was really important to me that once they did do this that they believed each other immediately there was no point where somebody is questioning somebody else's reality and the things that are happening to them and I think again just the the it was just important that these women were believing these other women and that their experiences were being validated and though it took them a little bit to get there that belief in their truth and the validity of their experiences was just like i didn't want the conflict any of the conflict or anything to be around like somebody not believing and then having to go through because this is many horror stories to have this trope yeah. where they tell the there's this thing happening and usually the man is like that's not no that's not happening you know and then the conflict is in like uh, the tension is in getting this person to believe you and I didn't want that to be the case um, instead I was like where can the conflict be and the tension be when you are believed immediately and you have to figure this out together and it's still very terrifying because of the outside forces you're dealing with and also these internal conflicts that are they're still strained relationships yeah and those I I hadn't really considered that because it felt so maybe it was so refreshing in the way that it didn't feel forced that I didn't recognize that immediately that there that conflict wasn't there um because it was so it was imagining that someone says something and you're immediately believed, which never happened. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. That was, uh, that is so refreshing. And um, in terms of the, like, the family dynamics and the intergenerational dynamics too, I loved that one of Mackenzie's sort of issues that she has to figure out um, because she moved away from home after certain tragedies and then sort of isolated herself there. Something that she's often talking about is uh, sort of twofold. One, that um, with her sisters growing up, there would not be enough love to go around and that she had to sort of create situations that would allow for her to be loved um, because the well of love that people had would eventually run dry um and she sort of has to grapple with that belief that she grew up with and then the other one uh is that also oh yeah and then once she does get home um she wants to be loved so badly she needs to 
be loved because she's in this place where she is lost and feeling hopeless, but also she hasn't been around and she has to sort of work for that love um, and realizing that she has to repair these relationships. These people aren't gone. They're still here for her, but she has to repair them um, in order to receive that love. And she's a little, not quite stubborn in that, in that sense. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Her her mom's, uh, her mom's path with the yarrow that she's stubborn. Just, I mean, there's your generational right there that is similar to her mom, but, um, there were, I, there were really interesting, um, ideas about what isolation sort of does to you, um, in terms of how you view the love you feel like you should receive. Um, and part of that also goes to the fact that she's a sibling of twins. So she was also sort of outside that dynamic as well. I'd love to, to talk about that a little. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, there are a couple of things going on with that. The first is that this idea that she grew up with, that there was love, that there was a finite amount of love, is again, uh, that's intergenerational, that's trauma. That is, you know, not, there's no indication that any outside family member or outside element gave her that idea. It is just this feeling she has. And because of that, I think she she becomes really avoidant, um, which is why she runs away. She, even when she goes home, she has a very hard time um, reconnecting and has a hard time accepting love. That's a, that's a huge part of it. And... I think that what I feel is really important is that the love that is there with her family is absolutely always there. There's no such thing in this family as conditional love. Like you're, she's only going to be loved if whatever. She's going to be loved regardless. But she's also not without accountability. She has herself done things that have hurt her family, you know, um, isolating herself, cutting off a part of herself, all that really damaged the family who had already really lost a lot. And she has to contend with that. So I really wanted to explore, like, what does accountability look like that is still really full of love, that isn't... um, carceral that isn't like you know you're no longer a part of the family because you've done this this and this and the isolation that she feels is self-imposed you know it's not something the family puts on her so you know she has to grapple with a lot she has to grapple with I mean a lot of the the these also avoided responses are also trauma responses Um, All the family members have responses to, you know, Tracy, her sister has, um, you know, trauma responses very different to Mackenzie. And though that's true, it still doesn't mean that she, her response still hurts people. So it's really about how 
they come together in all of that and and her trying to grapple with accepting love and also accepting that she has work to do to repair relationships that she's been a part of harming. Um, and another part of that is, especially in, in, in Cree and in, in for Nehiawak community is really important. And, um, you know, the concept of the like, what is it called? The, the family that is just like the parents. Uh, nuclear. The nuclear family is like not something that's not really it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, you know, this is why, I mean, her, her cousin is as much of a sister to her as her sisters who are her sisters, technically her half sisters, yeah. but they would never say that. They wouldn't even consider that they were only half, you know? Um, her aunts help raise her just as much as her parents. Like these are really tightly and intricately webbed family ties. And when she is removed from it, when she, for, you know, removes herself from it, she experiences loneliness in a very deep and scary way that the, the things that happen with her dreams happen when she's alone and when she's back with her family, they don't go away but her experience of them and how she deals with them is very different. And that is just because, you know, the idea of being in isolation and reconnecting with your community and whatever that community means for people also, that doesn't always mean blood relation, um, you know, is they're, they're very different experiences. And, and I, I really wanted to highlight that. Well, and I feel like this was a another book that I've read recently that was sort of a great example. I don't know if it's just the way that time is moving nowadays, which is at a weird uh, pace and yeah. uh, time, but that, you know, you're writing these books and then they they come they don't come out for a little while. And so many things happen and so much time passes between then and when people can get their hands on them. Yet this book, along with a few others I've read, have felt so much like a thing that I needed in this moment, which was that reminder of community and our our still sort of feelings of isolation through the pandemic and just in general figuring out how to be in community and what community looks like again. So that is something that I really loved as a sort of through line of this story. And I'd love uh, to hear what you want people to sort of take away from this along with, with that idea of reconnecting and listening and, um, and what else you hope people get when they read this book? Yeah, I think that particularly, you know, in the time we're in, which is, I mean, the pandemic is not over. It's still something, you know, we're navigating in our own lives, what it means to stay safe and keep your community safe. And also like 
stay connected to community, you know, how everyone has had to navigate what that looks like in the, the lockdown stages. Um, it was really interesting to see how people came together or didn't um, in, in, in keeping a, a community that was still online or, or what have you. And I think one of the biggest things for me is, and particularly the, 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 the part of Mackenzie being alone, like I expanded that and wrote much of that in isolation. I was, I was in isolation and in, that's a, that was a very scary time um, for everyone. And I think that connection to community is incredibly important and I think it's life-saving and it looks different for everybody. There are, especially for like queer indigenous kids, um, queer indigenous youth or, you know, like queer youth in general, sometimes um, connection to your your community can look different and it can be community and people you choose. It might not be blood relation, as I said before. In Vancouver, Mac has um, a very close friend, Jolie, who, you know, Mac really is her only connection to, to community. Um, and it is, I think, in very, in many, many ways, life-saving for Mackenzie. Um, so I just think that I mean, if anything, I think connection is really important. I think that's where love and joy is. And that does require, like being community is like a lot of responsibility. It's not just, um, as Mackenzie learns when she goes home, it's not just receiving, receiving love with giving nothing in return. It requires work and, you know, you to listen and you to, um, show up for other people as much as you're expecting or hoping people will show up for you too. Um, it's uh, an act of generosity, love, and reciprocity that is always, it's continuous. It is not something that ends. It's a process. It is, and I think and I hope that everybody else gets that from this story as well. And I tried to keep, we didn't talk about like the horror elements as much in the thrillers, but I wanted to keep those things for everyone who's going to read this book to experience for themselves. Um, so on January 10th or around this uh, episode will air, um, you can grab a copy of Bad Cree at Skylight Books. And thank you again so much to our guest, Jessica Johns, for joining us. Thank you so much. Today. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events. You can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the Piano Wire. Till next time.